The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. Well, how are you guys doing this morning? Feeling okay? I haven't had breakfast yet, but I did have a monster energy drink. And I've had a half a cup of coffee in that order. Well, yeah, I'm going to try to make it a whole cup of coffee. Hold on one second. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Is that what it's like, like when you're in, you go from college to then coffee, right? Like when you're an adult, your friends egg you on, like, yes, you need caffeine. I don't need caffeine that much, but I just love it so much. And I, um, and this is one of my favorite passages. Today we are kicking off part two of our Restored series. We've made it through a lot of the Old Testament. We're jumping into the prophets. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah in a very, very popular passage this week. So if you have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 6, if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of the ones at the back table. That will be my gift to you. There's only a few left, I think. We're running low. Um, but I want you guys to make sure that you are getting in the Word each week on the back of our bulletins. We let you know where we're going next week so that you can look forward, prepare your heart and your mind to meet God next week. This is something we want to provide for you all. And this week, Isaiah 6, I mean, it doesn't get much more magnificent than this passage. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump in, and I might, I could feel the monster energy rising up within me. Um, so I apologize ahead of time if my words start mashing together. It's just because my brain isn't slowing my mouth down enough. Uh, so let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray today that as we look at one of the most magnificent pictures of you on your throne in scripture, that we would be humbled that we would find you to be awe-inspiring, that we would see you for the powerful, all-present king that you are. Lord, we, we love you and not just one aspect of you, God. We want to love all aspects of you and all of your characteristics. So today, as we look at what it means to look at your holiness, prepare our hearts, challenge our hearts. God, leave us never the same after this morning. In Jesus' name, all God's kids said. Amen. I've just got to say, some of you guys are throwing me off because you sat in different seats this week. Like, I don't know, Sigmires, I don't know what you guys are doing over here. It's really throwing me off. I don't like this. Okay. So there's this thing that we do, and by we, I mean men, and by men, I mean like usually younger men. I don't know, maybe I'll keep on doing it as I get older, but as I've aged, I haven't done this as much. But we, we size people up, and we do it all the time. You size up people that you meet. You size up people based on how much money they may have or how big they are. And a few years ago, one of my good friends, his name was Dave. We were about the same age. Dave was taking jujitsu, and he was getting really, really good. But Dave was little, and Dave was talking all yappy to me one day about, like, he could take me because he knows jujitsu. And I'm like, dude, I will sit on you, and you will jujit nothing. And I had sized him up, and he had sized me up. And then it got really weird because the church staff heard of this conversation and started making bets and pulling out odds as to who was going to win this fight. Now, keep in mind, I'm the pastor over small groups, and Dave was one of the maintenance workers at the time. And I'm like, he's 5'8", nothing. I will crush this guy. And I'm walking around the office because I knew that these books were going around. This is what church staffs do, by the way, in case you didn't know. Um, but I'm walking around just big. I'm like, yeah, you guys, bet on me. Like, look at that guy. And everyone was betting on him. My ego is just shrinking and shriveling. And we never did end up fighting. Lucky for Dave. <laughs> Lucky for Dave. 
But there's that thing that we do when we size people up based on what we know about them. And every one of us this morning has sized God up in some way. And you may have a really, really big view of God, and that will affect your life. Or you might have a very small, weak view of God, and that will affect your life. Every single one of us, whether you are a Christian, a church attender, not a church attender, whether it is your first time here, whether you've never believed in God, we've all made a decision in our minds about who God is and what he is doing and what he is capable of. Now, this passage is a vision that God gives to Isaiah. As we transition into the prophets, it's good for you to know that at this point in the book of Isaiah, the kingdom had been divided. And right when Isaiah is writing this passage, the king who had ruled, who was a good king, had ruled for 52 years, had died. And everyone was at that moment of what's going to happen next. We just had a good leader and he is gone. We just had a king who's been serving us well and he has passed away. And this is what God gives to Isaiah. Verse 1 of chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. May God bless the reading of his word. King Uzziah was a good king. Imagine taking your favorite president and letting them rule for 52 years. You'd think, man, some good stuff would happen. But imagine when they passed away and there was fear and anxiety. Like, right? Like half the country right now is in anxiety and fear. And the other half is not because of the way our election went. And God wants to set something straight. That no matter what is going on here, God is on his throne, seated on his throne in power. And if you've never, if you're not the mental image person that I am, I need you to try to muster up all of your kindergarten imagination experience. Because this story is wildly weird. Seraphs mean like the, the set of flame ones, the flaming ones. So it's likely these, eight, these angelic beings had some sort of glowing fire about them. And there were banks of these beings, and they had six wings. These aren't the Thomas Kincaid painting of angel type of things, right? Six wings covering their face, covering their feet, and flying. And when they yell out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It says the, the threshold shook and smoke fills the temple. These are just angelic beings that are doing this. This is not God talking. This is not him shaking the threshold. This is a being that he made to worship him 24 hours a day in the midst of his throne room. They are screaming back and forth to one another, one side to the other side, one side to the other side. And we don't know that they ever let up with this because in the book of Revelation, John gets a vision and there's still these angels saying the same exact thing thousands of years later. This is wild. And then when we pray, dear God, bless my mac and cheese. In Jesus' name, amen. God is 
intimately interested in hearing your words in the midst of the smoke, in the midst of the peals of thunder, in the midst of these voices just worshiping him, these perfect beings, covering up, flying, screaming, and then God is here like, I want to hear all these prayers. I want to hear them all. I love them. And right now, we've got to remember that this is the God we pray to. So often, it's easy for the pendulum of Christianity to swing. We want to, we want to come to Jesus, the friend of sinners, and that is good. But we must never forget that there is the king of everything. They are the same being. The person who created the universe, who rules the universe, who is sovereign, who is powerful, is also the friend of sinners. And we're going to get to that in this passage in a minute. But we have to understand the magnitude of his power. I like that he's seated. He's not fretting about. I don't know if, if you guys are like me at all, but when I fret about, when I have high stress, I generally don't sit down, right? What do you guys do when you stress out? Do any of you guys just like sit there? I know some people like do the shutdown mode. I'm this guy. Okay, okay. I get my whiteboard out and I'll just start drawing. I'll get my Bible out. I'll start throwing things if I'm stressed. Like I'll get a little racquetball and just bounce it off a wall. I'll go for a walk around my block because my wife and I have been doing this like step count um, competition. And every day she gets like 10,000 when I'm at 74. So I'm, I'm going to start walking, just de-stressing. God is not fretting about. There's never been a moment in history where God was caught off guard. There's never been an election result. There's never been some sinner coming to know Jesus. There's never been someone that has sinned where God's like, I never saw that one coming. He is seated on his throne, seeing all, knowing all his days never end. In Psalm 90, verse 4, it says, For a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday, and when it is past, or as a watch in the night. And then the Bible describes our lives like a vapor, a breath. And I know some of us don't, um, some of us feel invincible. Those of us who are here under the age of 21, maybe. You got that invincibility factor. I can tell by the way you drive on Fishhawk Boulevard. You just don't just go and cut off people and make me stand against you. But our life, our vapor of life, God is intimately in the midst of. As he sits in his throne, not caught off guard, knowing all, seeing all, being worshipped 24 hours a day by these fiery ones who are proclaiming how holy he is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. We're going to get to that in a minute. God is saying, told us that he knows where every bird on every branch is. And not a sparrow falls off one branch apart from the will of the Father. I mean... You guys, I can barely get through my inbox, let alone manage every bird just in Tampa, let alone every bird in the world, and let alone we, we extrapolate all the other verses we have that God knows every hair on every head at any given moment. So like as you're getting your haircut, God's like 2,340, 2,220, and he knows. God is willing that every one of your hearts is beating right now at this moment. If you don't think he's as intimately involved in your life as he is a sparrow's, you would be dead wrong. If he's holding up each sparrow on every branch, how much more does he care about you? That verse goes on to tell us. So all around the world, with all the sparrows and the sand cranes, God's like, you live, you live, you live, you die, you live, you're born, you die, you live, you're born, you die, you live, boom, 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 boom. And then God knows all of the hairs on the heads of this people in this room. Some of you are less blessed than others. 
But God's like, I know, like you used to have this much hair, now you have this much, and you still have this hair, but it just migrated to your back. But it's still there, I'm still counting it, tally, tally, tally. God knows all of this. And you might think like, oh, that's cute, that's funny. No, it is cute and funny, but it's the reality. Now, we, we need to look at this phrase that they say, because the holiness of God is so emphasized in this passage, and really in the Bible, unlike any other characteristic of God. It says, holy, holy, holy. Now, holy means set apart, other than, unique, different. He is different from you and I. We need water and food. God needs none of that. We need naps and pizza. God does not. God did not rest on the seventh day because he was exhausted. He rested because he made us as creatures who were going to get exhausted. And we needed to recharge and depend on him. He didn't finish creating the world and say, whew, that was a doozy just like he's not exhausted in the throne now. He is different from us. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-present. And this verse, I really love this, because this holy, 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 there's that big church word, a stained glass word. The whole earth is full of his. Now, if you were just reading and you took an English class, you would think, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his holiness. But it doesn't. It says full of his glory, full of his kavod, full of the weightiness of who God is. God's intrinsic character is what is his holiness, who he is, what he's about, what he does, how he operates. When his character goes public, that's what we're going to call his glory based on this text. Because he is perfectly holy, and when that holiness is displayed, it's his glory. It's, it's like you and I. We know who we are. We know who our spouses are, our friends. We know that this person's a good person. And when they meet a fiery trial, you see that goodness in them come to life in fruition. You see patience that you knew was always there, but you didn't always see it until it had to come public. That's the weight of a person. That's how they are measured. That's the sense of glory. And, and just so we're clear, there is no other attribute in the Bible that is proclaimed with this threefold proclamation. Nowhere in the Bible does it say God is love, 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 though he is loving 100%. Nowhere in the Bible does it say God is forgiving, 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 though he is forgiving. Nowhere in the Bible does it say anywhere else except for this phrase here in Revelation that God is holy, holy, holy. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Some of us oftentimes think that when we would stand before God, we we're going to have questions for him. I remember when I first became a Christian, I always thought, yeah, man, I've got all these questions for God. And when I meet God, I'm going to be like, God, why did you make mosquitoes? They're evil. And he's going to say, well, I, don't, I wouldn't have to say anything. Because I, I kept on reading my Bible. And I, I began seeing what happened every time someone encountered God. Isaiah sees God and he says, woe is me, I'm dead. I've seen the king, I'm not worthy, I'm dead. Moses had that beautiful prayer, I think it was in Exodus 19, where he, he prays, God, show me your glory. And God basically says, if I show you my glory, you will be dead. So here's the plan, Moses. I'm going to show you part of my glory. I'm going to put you in a cleft of a rock, and I'm going to pass by with this like LeBron move, cover your eyes, and then boom, you're going to see the leftover trails of my glory. And then he does this, and Moses is like, oh, this is amazing. I saw the leftover of leftovers of God's glory, but probably didn't have a mirror. And then when he was going down the mountain to Sinai, Aaron and the Israelites looked at Moses, whose face was beaming after seeing the leftover trails of God's trails, and they were scared of that reflection. 
Not scared of seeing God, scared of seeing how God's leftover glory bounced off Charlton Heston's face. That's what they were terrified of. He was so connected with God that just seeing the leftovers of leftovers goes down the mountain and Aaron's like, Moses, what's wrong? Your face. And in the movies, it doesn't do it justice because he goes up and just comes down and looks older every time, which I think is weird. Like they should have like done something with better special effects in the 60s or 70s whenever that was made. But this idea that God is holy and his glory, we can't even come in the presence of. When people see God, they fall down as though dead. If an angel walked in this room right now, nobody would ask it questions or an autograph. We would all bolt out of here. If one of the seraphim came into this room, one of these six-winged, set-afire ones, screaming holiness, if his voice can shake the threshold of God's throne room, this chapel would be obliterated. We would be back to the dust from which we came. This is the king we serve. This is the holiness of God. Is this who you're praying to? Is this the vision you have in your mind when you go to thank God for the food he's given you? Because we should still pray for that mac and cheese, but I'll bet you that prayer changes. I'll bet you if before you go to lunch today, you just say, okay, we're going to go out. Well, let's read this passage and then pray to this vision that Isaiah had. Pray to that God that's in this book right here, in his book. And you sit there wherever you're eating, and you just, angels are screaming. Thresholds are shaking. Smoke is filling. Peals of thunder. Lord, that you would love me is incredible. That you would provide food for me is, is absolutely amazing. Thank you. Thank you, creator of all things, for giving us this day. Thank you for keeping my heart beating. Thank you for keeping my breath moving. Changes everything. Man, Isaiah had the proper response. Woe is me. We oftentimes hear, you know, because I love the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. That's why I have it written, grace, mercy, it is finished. I'm all about that. But the reason I'm all about this is because I've seen the visions of God and the standards of God in the Bible. This is the standard we measure up to. This is the standard by which we are judged. When Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the weightiness of God, this is the weightiness that God measures all of us by. And I know this is very, um, this is very Baptist preaching. My wife would love it. She's not here today. Uh, but, but we have to reckon our lives not compared to those around us. Because some of you know different people here. And that is not who you are compared to at the judgment seat. God is not grading you on a bell curve. So you can't sit here and hear things about God and feel like, oh, man, I, my life needs to change. But then you look over, you see your neighbor in, like, you know, row 4B, and you're like, oh, that guy's a way worse jerk than I am. I think God will let me in if he's letting him in. That is not how God operates. God says, here is my holiness. Here is my glory. Are you as weighty, as heavy, as pure as that? And if not, we're in trouble. But then we get to this really insane part of this story. One of the seraphim, in verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So 
in the midst of this scene, Isaiah's like, I'm about to die, I'm unclean, and one of these angels comes with tongs and a hot coal and sears it against his lips and says, your, your sin is atoned for, you are forgiven. Now, it, that may not sound like anything unique to you, but you have to understand, in Jewish culture up to this point, they add a lot of rules. 613 rules about how to live life, about what it meant to be clean and unclean. Some of you may have read those rules, right? So you shouldn't touch anything. Oh, let me, let me do this first. There was a moral purity, and there was like a ritual purity. And God wanted you to be pure in both ways before you could approach him, especially the priest when he would go into the Holy of Holies. He had to be morally pure, not have killed people, committed adultery, and ritually pure, which meant you can't have touched a dead animal within a certain time frame which means you can't touch certain bodily fluids. If somebody got blood on you, that you were ritually unclean. Because God is life, and for death to touch you was to bring in something that, was, that is anti-God. God is the giver of life, the author of life. And when sin entered, shattered and broke everything, it let in death and disease. It let in leprosy and cancer. It let in all of these things that plague our lives today. And th this is what makes this so beautiful. In the Old Testament up to this point, anytime a clean person touched an unclean person, so if you walked up to somebody that had leprosy and they bumped you, you were considered unclean. It's always the unclean thing that makes the clean thing unclean. It, it's just like with, with, with anything here. You have, um, you have a kid, and I've got lots of kids, and they get lots of sick, and I don't like it. Um, but I, I, I do this. I go to school with Silas and take him to preschool. And as a parent, I judge other parents very harshly. Um, so if I walk into preschool and I see some, like, green-nosed little sucker, I just look at him and I think, you have bad parents. And I'm, I'm, I am, I'm Judgey McJudgerson, I'm Judgey McJudging them. And, uh, and I look at them and I think, why would you send your kid here? Now my kid's going to get sick. And before I send Silas in, I'll usually, like, get some comfort sanitizer, just rub it all over his face, stick it up his nose. Um, I don't really do that, whoever's just done that. I know sometimes I say things, but I don't do that. I mean, I have, not up his nose, but on his face. <laughs> but, but I look at this and I think, that, that kid's going to get my kid sick. And then he does. And then Silas is sick for four days. And then right at the end, as he's starting to feeling, feel better, Jackson gets sick. And then he's sick for like 10 years. And then right at the end, Savannah gets sick. And, and it's just this cycle. And I know some of you parents are with me, like, yeah, that cycle, I hate it. And this is how cruel I am. I've even thought at times, when my first kid gets sick, I'm going to make them just lick each other to the face. You, you slobber, you spit on your siblings, you just get it all over with. But my wife said that's a bad idea, and so did my mom. You guys, I think I have good parenting advice in my own head. But this infection is, is what the Jewish people experienced. The unclean made the clean thing unclean. And for the first time, we see this weird picture where something touches an unclean person who has just said, I am unclean, I'm from an unclean people, super, super Mr. Unclean, and God says, my cleanliness, my holiness, my purity can overwhelm and overshadow your sinfulness. There's another place that we see this in Scripture, although you may not have caught on because you, many of us did not grow up in Jewish households where you had to follow these ritual cleanliness laws. But there was a person who walked around who touched unclean people, who reached out and put his hand on lepers. Jesus. Jesus didn't go away from the dead people. He raised them to life. Jesus didn't 
back up when he saw someone with a disease. He reached out and touched them and said, be healed, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is the fulfillment of this picture that God's holiness can be brought by God to humanity. When the woman who had been bleeding for, for years and years and years reached out and touched Jesus, Jesus should have been made unclean, but instead, without him even knowing it, his power went through his robe and healed her. Jesus brings in this upside-down kingdom, this backwards way of thinking that was not what the Jews were prepared for. They, they knew, their worldview was, if you are clean, you touch an unclean thing, now you're unclean, and you've got to go clean yourself up. And God says, no, I'm starting something different. And in the prophets, we're going to see a lot of these illustrations that point to God pouring out into his people to change their lives. What I love about this passage, too, and, th- and this is something that I, I'm, I love because it's so cool. Because Isaiah saw this vision. And then if in John chapter 12, when it's describing Isaiah's vision in the past, it says, John 12, 41, I love this. Isaiah said these things, that, he had, that God has blinded the eyes and hardened the hearts of the people who would not see God, because he saw, Isaiah saw, his glory and spoke of him. Now you're wondering, who is this person looking back at Isaiah's story and saying, Isaiah prophesied because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess. So here's what this passage does in John chapter 12. It shows us that the person sitting on the throne was Jesus. Pre-incarnate Jesus. Pre-Virgin Mary Jesus. Anytime in the Bible you see in the Old Testament where there's God in a body figure, it is pre-incarnate Jesus. Pre-Jesus in the flesh before he was in the flesh around the 0 AD time. This is mind-blowing. When Jacob wrestled with God, it was Jesus. Yeshua, the Messiah, the guy who spoke things into existence. I still don't get that whole wrestling match, but I, I think it's fascinating. When Abraham spoke with him and shared a meal, it was, be- it was Jesus coming to earth before he had had his body he would get. When Isaiah sees a vision, it was the word of God, Jesus Christ. God the Father is a spirit. Contrary to popular depictions, he's not some hyper-buff, Herculean old guy. When we have a vision of Jesus, of the Bible, who also is not some moosed-up, mullet-wearing white guy with a blue sash and sheep, we have to know that this God is the king and the savior. This is the king who came down from his throne in heaven and was exalted and coronated on the cross. This is the king who made it possible for our uncleanliness to be left at the altar. And it was by his purity that we are made clean. It was by his perfect life that when we are touched by him, it's clean, it's done, it's paid for, it is finished. The the tab is paid in full. This vision of Isaiah takes us from the high, lofty, universe picture magnitude of God and his holiness, and it swings and points us to a time when God will touch us and we will be forgiven. Some of us today are probably in need of some of this type of forgiveness. Some of us today are probably in need of a recalibration of our view of who God is. And it is a tension. It's always a battle, church fam. 
it's a battle that swings back and forth. And, you know, you have churches that they're, they emphasize the holiness of God. And they're very, very passionate about how God is holy, super duper duper holy. Now, the thing that's weird about those churches is that oftentimes I've seen that the people who are obsessed with the holiness of God, it's like they don't realize that, that God's holiness would literally blow them to smithereens if they encountered it apart from Christ. And then the pendulum can swing to the other side. And this is, I, I get accused of being over here. God, I'm a forgiveness, God is love, grace and mercy side. No matter what you've done, bring it to the cross, you are forgiven. The Bible calls us to something radically different. Holding in tension God's massively radical holiness and his radical sacrifice for our sins simultaneously. Because if God is holy, the more we see him for who he is and how holy he is, the more we'll realize how much we fall short. And the more we see how sinful we are in light of his holiness, the more this thing of forgiveness becomes sweeter and more precious. This week, um, even if you're not in a small group, and I think I printed them out, but I was, I was uh, roped into singing today. So I've got some articles, and you, or you can download it from this week's Bible study uh, on the chapel website. And it has an article about this concept, about how our lives should be one of growing in an understanding of how holy God is and how absolutely jacked up and depraved we are. And, and, and those of you who have been here, you've heard this before. I love this picture. Because as we see God is better than I thought, he's bigger than I thought, and as you begin to say, I can't believe I'm more sinful than I thought, I lie more, I exaggerate more, I do this more, I lust too much, as this chasm grows wider and wider, the thing that bridges it is the cross of Christ. So when you first get saved, you're like, okay, I'm a bad person. I need God as a savior. So God is this big and your sin was this bad. And Jesus' cross is this little. It's cute, though, when people get saved. And then as you grow, if you grow in your faith, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. God is holy. He's got angels screaming, threshold stuff. He's totally perfect. He's doing everything. Sparrows up, sparrows down, born dead, born dead, hairs falling. He's there, over there, everywhere. He's bigger, holier than I thought. And then all of a sudden you realize, I am even worse than I thought. You know, like you realize that at different phases of life. I was doing, um, I was talking with uh, some, some young couples this week, and one of the things I told one of the couples was this. You know, each time you go to a new phase of life, you realize you're worse than you were. Like when you become an adult, you realize, oh, man, I'm more selfish than I thought. You get married, and then you, you encounter two sinful humans that merge their lives together, and you think that they're doing everything wrong. And newsflash, they think you're doing everything wrong. And you're like, I'm more selfish than I thought. I thought that towels could be used for oil changes and not just facial washing. And then, and then you have kids. Because with your spouse, you can still be selfish. You could be like, yeah, I could still be selfish and self-centered and they'll live. But you have kids. And then once you have a kid, if you're selfish and self-centered, they die, literally. Like you've got to care for them. You can't just leave them there and say, take care of yourself. And then you realize I, I was more self-centered than I ever knew. God is even bigger. When you go through these Bible studies, you learn about the holiness of God, the glory of God. You learn about how powerful he is. You learn about his omnipresence. You learn about all of these aspects. And then you keep learning about yourself. You're like, oh, I'm even worse. I can't even get out a sentence without thinking of myself. Romans 14 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Do you do everything in faith? Oh, by faith, this bite will make it to my mouth. Ah, oh, by faith, I will do it by faith. I mean, I don't do that. And I, and I try. But then what happens as this chasm grows? All of a sudden, Jesus, who was this big and teeny bit cute in my life in the beginning, now I wake up and I think, whew, you really had to uh, pay a price for me. Thank you. I, I can't believe that you would look at me and say, I'll take you. 
because he doesn't just see where I'm at today. He doesn't just see the sin that I'm aware of today. He sees all of the sin that is mapped out in my life that I don't want to commit, that I already hate even though I haven't committed it. But God graciously only reveals one or two things at a time, I think. Otherwise, we would just be in the fetal position in fear. Have you noticed that about God? That even in his holiness, he is gentle? That as you look back in your life, you could say, man, look at when he showed me that I was doing this bad thing. But, but now, 10 years later, I've seen all of these other things that didn't measure up to God's standard. But he graciously says, just one at a time, just one at a time. Just like a loving father does with his, their children, just one at a time. I don't have to teach my kids everything. I just have to teach them. Like, we all put on pants the same, one foot, one leg. And I know that sounds easy, but a bunch of us are spiritually putting both feet in one pant leg and falling all over the place. And Jesus is like, yeah, I knew you were going to do that. I knew you weren't going to be able to stand up. But I'm here. The more you see how good I am and how jacked up you are, the more you'll appreciate all that I've done for you. So if you want to press into that more, I would encourage you um, to grab that. It's called the Gospel Grid, and it's just taken from a Bible study that I love. Um, and if you don't grab one of those, you can download it online. It's, part, it's the back end of the Bible study PDF that's on the home page. You guys, we've got we've to see this God for who he is and stop pandering about with our made-up versions of God. Don't size up God based on culture. Don't size up God based on church background. Size up God based on how he's revealed himself in here. And if you're not in here, try your best not to make presuppositions about who you think God is or should be. Because for all of the shows and parodies and pictures that this world gives us, for all of the beautiful art and songs, this alone is the inspired word of God, breathed out by God himself so that we could know him, experience him, and see how desperately we need him. Let's pray. Father, you amaze me. Your holiness is so beyond anything that I can comprehend. Lord, I look forward to seeing you one day. I look forward to being in your presence one day. To hearing the seraphim proclaim your glory. To witness the threshold shaking. I pray today that you would give us a taste of that as we pray to you. I pray that today we would not size you up by some cheap world-crafted picture, but we would press into this vision in Isaiah 6 and, and check out the vision in Revelation so we can know how you fit and who you are, that you are in control and that you love us. Lord, some here today need the coal atonement pressed upon their lives. I pray that you would do that. Some here today may be realizing for the first time that they had a low view of who you are, that they didn't have a fear of their sin coming before you. I pray that, that all of us would take a long, hard look at our own lives and run to the cross that bridges that ever-growing chasm between how great you are and how messed up we are. I pray that that cross would make us grateful. I pray that that cross would set us free. In Jesus' name, amen.